0: How do we make the search for potential partners more systematic more effective that doesn't require hours and hours and hours of desk research or going out to conferences all over the world which is a charity i mean we just can't do i do wonder so here is a potentially off the wall idea i wonder if ai has a hand in this right i wonder and i might try it after this call if you were to put a prompt into chat gpt that said Can you find the organizations that share this purpose and these values? What would it come up with?
1: Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome three innovative CEOs, Helen Rippon, Mark Wally, and Julian Mund, to explore how collaboration helps their relatively small organizations effectively pursue huge ambitions. They're valuable lessons here for leaders of organizations of all types and sizes. Well, first of all, let me me just say welcome to all three of you to the Purposeful Strategist. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us for this and to share your thoughts and experiences. Maybe we could get going just by asking each of you briefly to just say a, a few words about yourself and your organization and kind of what its purpose is. And Helen, if you don't mind, maybe I'll start with you.
0: So I'm Helen Rippon, I'm Chief Executive of Worldwide Cancer Research, and we're a charity that essentially is a seed funder, but not of businesses of cancer research. So we want to start the new discoveries across the world that will ultimately lead to breakthroughs that will save lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. And Mark?
2: So, hi, I'm Mark Crawley. I'm the CEO at STEP, the Society of Trust and Estates Practitioners. So we're an organisation that's uh, here to educate people. So we educate professionals who help families plan their futures. And we have created a network across the world of people that do that. And we're helping families often thinking about times when they're going to be at their most troubled and needy. And sometimes they're already in that
1: when we're trying to help them plan. Mm -hmm. Very good. And, And Julian...
3: I'm Julian Mund, Chief Executive at the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association, PLSA. We are also a membership body, we're 100 years old uh, this year, Um, and we represent UK pension schemes that provide retirement income to about 30 million savers in the UK, so our members are predominantly pension schemes, but we also work with a whole range of businesses that provide services back into those pension schemes, asset managers, accountants, lawyers, consultants...
1: Great. So thank you all again for joining us. I wonder if we could just start by kind of, in some sense, almost diving into the heart of the question around collaboration and purpose, which is where does collaboration fit for you in realising your organization's purpose? And can you give us an example of where that's been part of it? Julian, you want to have a, a first go at that?
3: Yeah, of course. So the reason why my place exists is to help everyone get a better income in retirement. I guess that's the purpose of the PLSA. That's what we're here to do. So we try and ensure that everything that we do is trying to deliver helping people get a better income in retirement. We create ourselves, as we all do, uh, plans and strategies that will enable us to get from the sort of things we're doing today to the sort of things we'll be like, hoping to do in another number of years into the future. In amongst the things that we specify that we would like to be doing in the future, we have one strand of work. One of our objectives is all about bringing the industry together that whole strand of activity is all about collaboration it's about collaborating across the organization and it's also about collaborating externally to help us get some things done so two examples i'll make them really quick so um an internal example of collaboration and it's the thing lots of membership bodies do is we a few times during the course of the year we'll run big conferences where we bring together our members, stakeholder organisations, media, government officials, the team at the PLSA, and the ones we do are relatively large. We have about 1,500 people attending them. There's an exhibition of about 80 odd organisations, and it's a conference program with lots of different aspects: big plenary sessions, roundtable discussions, breakout sessions, fireside chats, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera that runs for about three days and we do it all ourselves so in order for that to happen with a team that's my team's about 50 it involves virtually everybody in my organization you know in one way or another if we don't all come together at various moments in time about various aspects in the delivery and the logistics for this conference it just will not happen it will not be successful. We will not get the great feedback that we get. We won't attract the wonderful people that we get. So my whole organization has to work together. It's about a six to nine month lead in, depending on the conference, before the conference, to make sure that we do everything we can to collaborate together to make it happen. So that's a really good example for me of my organization all working together internally to collaborate. And without that, we've got no chance of doing it. We have to do it for our organization because it's you know the big shop window for us all to come and discuss the purpose of the organization and, and what we're looking to deliver. My second example of collaboration is an external one, working with stakeholders. And we share a common goal in pensions, really, in the pensions industry. We're all trying to help people get some more money when it comes around to retirement. Pension schemes aren't really competing with each other, They're providing pensions to the pe- people who might be employees for a particular employer. There is a little bit of competition, but most of my members don't really compete together. but. We find we have a shared interest in the fact that people don't really understand pensions as well as we would like them to understand pensions. And when you survey, the figures are quite shocking and quite embarrassing. Over half of the public won't know how to find their pension information. Only 20% of the public will be confident they're saving enough for retirement. So we've joined together with um, 17 major providers, members of ours, And members of another membership body called the association of british insurers the abi and it's reaching out at the moment to over 40 million savers and what we do is we're running this campaign where we all have to work together members of our competitor organization one could call them um in the insurance space with our own organization and all work together and invest several million pounds to run this big campaign called pay your pension some attention And we have to work together with loads of different people in order to get this broadcast and get it out there. You know, if you have walked through stations in the UK, you will have seen someone called Big Zoo, a a kind of a rapper and a grime artist and a chef from television who appeals to the generation that we're trying to appeal to as opposed to the old fogies like me, who is able to um, kind of communicate the message in a way that works. That would never have happened if we weren't prepared to all just work for the, the, the better good, which is to help try and get people have a better understanding of pensions so they make good decisions. So we've invested millions of pounds and loads of time into this campaign. It's year one. It's got a couple more years to go. And it's a lovely example for me of how it can work when you're prepared to collaborate outside of your own organization with others. Very proud that it's been picking up awards for being a wonderfully good campaign everywhere it turns, quite frankly. So that's my greedy second example, Belden. That's great. Mark, maybe I can ask you to share an example or two if you'd like. So our
2: purpose is enshrined in our articles. So we're we're a limited company, we're not a charity. Um, But it is all about providing confidence to the public. It's about giving governments and regulators confidence they're dealing with the best professionals that they can deal with when they're facing perhaps really difficult decisions about their future and their family's future. So uh, I think a really good example for us is digital assets are something that we've all heard of and actually very, very few people understand. Actually, as Julian has highlighted, people don't really like talking about money. And so, so we thought if we're going to get people engaged in this, we probably need a different angle. And the idea about talking about digital memories, so your photos, uh, is, is what came to it. And we've worked with Queen Mary University of London, um, who were also for this project funded by Microsoft. And the report was highlighting how little people know about their digital assets and how they should plan for them. And that was then backed up by our own survey of our members that said actually, as the professionals, we don't really know much about this either. But what we did, we took this digital memories campaign to try and engage the public and and we've got members all over the globe. So we took the data from the report, we used the digital memories campaign to get people to think about the photos that are locked in their phone and what's going to happen to those. And 8 million views later, we think we've made an impact. We know that 200,000 people have downloaded the full video. They're not just I'll have a click and give up after five seconds. They've watched the full two-minute video that tells them what settings they need to change on their phone to be able to pass these pictures on at some point. Now, that's a really great opening for us to be able to then go and talk about digital assets, financial assets, as opposed to the assets, of photographs. So there's Microsoft, there's Queen Mary University. We had one of the major firms put sponsorship into the programme as well. But we've been involved in the campaign online, as have all of our firms. Our members have really picked it up, but the public has obviously got involved too. What that's led to is then uh, really positive conversations with Apple, with LinkedIn, with Facebook, with the whole digital universe, around how they can be involved in changing their settings and the way that people can interact and, and use settings to allow somebody to access what's
1: held behind the secret code. Mark, that's a really, really interesting example. And, and after this, maybe you can tell me <laughs> where to find that. <laughs> yeah. Very happy to do that. <laughs> Good. And Helen, what about you?
0: So. Collaboration is key to our purpose and um, because the cancer research landscape is vast. There are, even in just in the UK, thousands and thousands of charities alone that describe cancer research in their articles, and that's not even thinking about all of the other players in the sector, public and private sector. I think that the example that I would highlight is the importance of discovery research. So we sit right at the earliest stage of research, of seed funding those brand new ideas, and allowing scientists to have a bit of intellectual freedom to explore totally new concepts and perhaps to do things that are a little bit left field. And in many cases, challenge dogma. Now, we know from the International Cancer Research Partnership, uh, who pulled together the data, that the funding for that kind of research has dropped by a quarter since 2006, as other funders have turned more to research that happens further down the pipeline, to things that are closer to translation and impact. And that's not wrong, but there is still a vast need for that early stage of discovery research that tells us the new things about cancer that we need to know if we're going to generate new diagnostics, new ways to prevent, and new ways to treat So there's a huge funding gap in our opinion. And we are not a huge organization. We are like Julian's organization, 50 people. We have an income of 10, 11 million pounds. We cannot possibly fill that gap on our own. So one of our core strategic objectives is to champion discovery research, to convince other people that they need to invest in this really important aspect of cancer research. Now, one of the most tangible ways that we do that is through co-funding partnerships. So we will find bits of research that we would like to fund and they're really interesting. And then we'll look for other people to partner with and essentially pitch it to them and say, come in 50-50 with us. You know, you can dip your toe into something a bit riskier than you probably would normally. And with us, you can spread that risk. And you can rely on our process because for 40 years, we've been assessing these sorts of projects and grant applications. You can feel reassured that through our assessment process, we've picked out stuff that really is potentially transformational and, and of huge impact. So that's been a really successful aspect of our collaboration that has leveraged considerable amounts of extra money for discovery cancer research that wouldn't have gone into it and enabled us to support cancer research projects across the world that would otherwise have gone completely unfunded. So that's uh, an area that I think for us will only grow and grow and there's a real appetite for it as well.
1: Helen, these other funders, do they tend to be any particular type? You know, if you think about them, are they sort of big foundations? We'd all know their names. Are they other relatively small organizations like yourselves? If you could characterize them, what do they look like?
0: So there's a range. They're generally charities, not exclusively. So one of the longest standing partnerships we have is with Cancer Australia, who are a government funding arm in Australia. But they're often cancer charities. They're often of a similar size to us or smaller. Um, you know, one of the things that we can do for small cancer specific charities, so charities that only look at one particular type of cancer, they can often be quite small. And if they want to fund research, it can be very difficult for them to do that on their own because you, you know, you can't invest in the team. And it's quite a, a process, I think, to assess the quality of research before you decide to fund it. So I would say that the type of organizations that's sort of expanding most rapidly when it comes to co funding partnerships are those smaller charities that do want to fund research that perhaps need a slightly bigger, more experienced partner to do it with. The matching process there for us is to take projects that we think are good enough to fund and we would like to find funding for and to go, okay, so here's a pancreatic cancer project. Who are the other pancreatic cancer charities or trusts or foundations who might be interested? And we just put it to them.
1: Yeah. To me, that sort of takes us into a question that I'd be interested to get your thoughts, Mark and Julian, on it. You know, when you think about collaboration, do you think about working with organisations sort of like yourself? You kind of know how they work because they look a lot like you. Or do you reach out to organizations that are very different from yourself, different in scale, different in motivation? Sort of what's the pluses and minuses of any of that? Mark? So we do both. So in the example I gave you, well, we're a 50-person
2: organization with a smaller turnover. Yeah, We're below 10 million globally. So Microsoft's a bit of a different animal to us as is Queen Mary University of London. The industry is made up of all sorts of different sizes of businesses, companies, so from sole traders through to uh, multinational organisations. Those types of collaborations also put us in contact with governments, with regulators, with treasury departments of governments, with tax officials. And definitely we collaborate with other organisations that do things that we do as well. So Chartered Institute of Taxation in the UK, the AAT, so another tax type body, because lots of our members are giving advice around taxation. So we collaborate with who we need to collaborate with. It's not about scale or anything else. It's who can help get the message and build the message rather than the simple well they're a bit like us we'll talk to them yeah yeah
1: mark it sounds a little bit and i'm playing this back so you can tell me whether i've got it right or wrong that you you have a series of projects or initiatives and you realize to get this done we're going to, have to bring some other people in maybe you even get invited in and then you go well is this something we want to do or not rather than some sort of who do we want to collaborate with we A few years back when we were
2: setting out our strategy, we said that if we're going to be serious and be known, because we are tremendously well known within the advisor sector and the firm sector, but the public don't really know us. And so we said, well, if we want to get known and noticed, we've got to be out there talking about some things. We then thought about which subjects, topics could we talk about that others weren't necessarily talking about? So where could we be number one or number two voice on a topic? We pick five topics. digital assets is one of them it's going to, it's had a big focus. it's going to continue having a big focus. We've also got one around capacity, mental capacity. so we've got a a crisis heading towards us that uh, the number of capacity cases so people who are unable to look after themselves anymore because of dementia or Uh, other capacity issues is going to grow exponentially as the world population gets older. And we're going to need to have people who properly understand that, how to assess capacity and put the right plans in place so that families aren't having to wade through masses and masses of regulation at the most stressful times in their life particularly as families have got more and more complicated. So that sort of old nuclear family model, it's kind of the old model. Uh, There are so many blended families. And then you add in where families are across different jurisdictions, just across geographical boundaries. And suddenly it's not just even the difference between English and Scottish law, You could be law anywhere in Europe, anywhere in the world. And once you've got a footprint in two places, it starts to quickly multiply. And then suddenly the laws that you think apply in England, of course, they apply in England, but they probably aren't the same everywhere else. So we've got to reach out. With 50 people, we couldn't do that on our own.
1: Julian, what about you? How do you think about who you decide to partner with? Is it driven by a specific project or is it more... There's people out there that we think we need to know. We think once we get to know them we'll, you know we'll figure out the projects. How do you think about who to work with?
3: Again, a bit of both. Yeah, I might be wrong, but I think membership bodies can't do the job that they're set up to do if they're not going to be open, very open to collaborating. I think that's one of the nice things I've found about working for membership bodies is that reaching out and working with others to help. You achieve your own objectives and goals and also to help them achieve their objectives and goals you know you don't always there's nature of collaboration isn't it you you won't always get everything that you would seek and want but sometimes you you will lean in towards others because it will help them and then at some point further down the line that they'll lean in towards you and you're typically not competing i i always want to and encourage us to, to to help where we can and support where we can because places like us are typically Set up to do good things and try and achieve nice things, and that's one of the pleasures of working for, for places like us. I mean, I agree with with um, the need to collaborate in the way that Mark and Helen have, have outlined. I was just, just going to give another collaboration example so, achieving one's purpose and objectives is complicated. You know, the the way that you govern, the way that you uh, run your subscription services, the way that you run your events. I mentioned the events earlier, the way that you undertake your lobbying, how you're grappling with hybrid working and incorporating that within your operations, what you might be doing about your property situations and and things like that. So for me, just a different bit of collaboration I've mentioned, it's just collaborating with my peers from both within and outside of my industry. I I find that um, and I encourage the team to do that thoroughly useful and, and an excellent thing to do. You can just learn so much from what others are trying to do because we are, we've all mentioned, I think we're all about a similar size on this call by the sounds of it, you know, you don't, you're not blessed with the resource and the funding and the budgets, you know, so if one of your friends elsewhere or the people you connect with has tried something or done something or come across something and can share some templates or some ideas, Even that sort of collaboration is incredibly helpful towards helping you achieve the more high-finiting things that we as an organization will be spending a lot of time trying to do, you know, in my case, help people get more income in retirements. You know, I would remain very open to stretching far and wide within my industry, outside of my industry, however random it might seem.
0: Can I just jump in there, Zach? Because I I think there is a, it is an, an interesting observation, isn't it, that we all run organizations that are about 50 people which means you're big enough to have some quite lofty ambitions right but small enough that that's really quite tricky to deliver. So collaboration becomes important and I suppose when I think about who we are looking ideally to collaborate with, I sort of in, in my head there's that sort of Venn diagram of you know my organization their organization and you're looking for that core overlap aren't you of purpose, ideally culture and some key aspect of strategy where we align. But when we're thinking about expanding our organizational effectiveness, those sorts of collaborations enable you to drive out into areas that you don't know about, that you have no expertise in, and you just simply don't have the funding to build a whole department to serve that need. To give you an example, from Worldwide Cancer Research, we collaborate with um, another charity, a nonprofit called LifeArc, who are specialists in the translation and the commercialization of academic research. So if you're going to deliver new medicines to patients, at some point, you have to hand over to the private sector because only the pharmaceutical industry has the resource to do the big trials. And it's a sticking point. We call it the valley of death in research. You know, things drop off. The gap between academic research and the commercial sector is huge. So they exist to bridge that gap. And we collaborate with them in order to help facilitate the translation of our research down through the pipeline and, you know, beyond the point that our funding remit runs out. But we want to ensure that the things that we fund have some downstream prospects, some longevity, and will reach patients. So we collaborate with Life in order to do that. Now, a key part of that is, is their IP. Expertise. They understand medical intellectual property. I can't build that in house in my organization. There's no way I could possibly afford an IP lawyer and a business development manager and all the sorts of things that that would require. But through collaboration with Life Arc, we can cover that aspect very cost effectively and also draw on a huge organization with, you know, decades of experience. And we just couldn't do that on our own.
1: Hmm. Just reflecting on the examples you've used, I can sort of see three threads through them, you know, almost sort of answers to the questions, why collaborate? And you've all been positive about that. One is the one, Helen, you just talking about there, which is capability. They can do something we can't do. We just can't do it. They can fund half of this, so we can do twice as much. And then the third one feels to me like it might get overlooked sometimes, Mark is the one that in the example you talked about. There was a topic we wanted to get after by working with some other people. We kind of come at it from a different angle. You know, we could get people to go, "Oh, photos, yeah. Oh, you're right, yeah. That, you know," versus sort of we're trust lawyers and we, you know, we want to talk to you about digital assets. What are they? I don't know, but photos, I understand. You know, it, it just gives you a different angle into a topic. And and Julian, I think I could be wrong, but my sense is some of the stuff the PLSA has done around this retirement living standards was almost sort of a a shift of the conversation by working with some other people to come at it in a a slightly different angle than, than maybe might have happened before. That might be unfair, but I think that's
3: right. Yeah. So the retirement living standards just help people have a feel for how much money they might need when it comes around to their retirement to have a, a particular type of lifestyle, and you know, people we found from research just didn't know how much money they were shooting for at, at the end of it all, and and therefore, you know, what is it we're aiming for, and you know, what do we therefore need to do to give ourselves a chance of having the right collection of assets, not just um, pension, but people get um, income in retirement from lots of different places, so. We try to create something that helps people picture their future, picture their retirement. We call it the retirement living standards, and it sets out different income levels that you need for different lifestyles. Um, Lovely phrasing, I'm afraid, minimum, moderate and comfortable lifestyles for singles and for couples and for Mm -hmm. people in London and people outside of London because, of course, costs are different. Um, retirementlivingstandards.org.uk hopefully is the website Um, if anyone wants to go and have a look at them uh, I really recommend it but yeah we we had to work with research organisations to help us undertake the modelling and run the focus groups to bring together members of the public from all different places at all different times to understand whether Netflix is now an essential in someone's basket of goodies or not you know and it's incredible how um, actually the basket of goodies that people want nowadays is somewhat different uh, than it was um, when we first launched these things about four or five years ago pre the pandemic but yeah we did collaborate and we, and we did have to because y- you couldn't put it out there and not have people believing that it was good and that it was sensible and that it was practical because one of the kind of main things from it is you you want people to use it so when they communicate to the people that they're providing financial services to, pensions to, you know, to tell them all about it. So everybody starts incorporating it. So you, you have to get on board all of those many, many, many organizations that would range from high street retailers, very small companies, legal firms, any company you can think of we're talking about here, to be able to incorporate it in the messaging that they will put out so that they've got to believe in it. So, yes, that was quite a, a big feat in um having to collaborate with others. But again, we all had clarity on what it was we were trying to achieve. Back to one of the points I made earlier, people just don't really understand this weird world of finance and saving and all that as well as some of us would like them to. It'd be great if they could just understand it a bit more. How can we make it easier for them and provide them with simpler things to give them a chance to be able to do that? So, you know, you have to get that cross-sector, cross-industry buy-in to make it happen. And also, you have to capture the attention of the promoters, of the government, get it woven into their infrastructure, of the media, so they regularly talk about it and refer to it, you know. And so collaborating with them is very, very important because you need them on site in order to help you, back to the help you with the resource and expand your reach, help you communicate and tell everybody about it.
2: What Julian said is so important. You've got to think about all the stakeholders in this and what's their angle. You know, if I get a bunch of my tax lawyers talking to the Treasury, I don't understand a fraction of the conversation, a large fraction of the conversation that I don't understand. Because they're, they're down in the depths of you know, subparagraph 27, bullet three, and the impact on somebody's tax. And um, really? And they're brilliant. They're absolutely brilliant. They're having a conversation about what you might do to the tax legislation in the country. Frankly, there are very few MPs that are going to pick up on that message because, like me, they're not going to understand it. They just want the soundbite that will travel well on media. So you've just got to think about all the different stakeholders. How are they going to use this? What's their angle? And then you've got to really just work with everybody on all those different angles. And I'd love to say we came at the digital assets that we'd come up with as digital, the photos piece, as our first thought, of course we didn't. We were thinking, how can we get monetary assets at the front? And somebody blessed them in the team, brilliant, but it took them a little while to convince us, said, what about photos? No, no, no. We're talking financial assets. No, we're talking financial
1: assets. And eventually, ah, oh, we get it. <laughs> and look at the results. <laughs> you know, Mark, in that example you're talking about, that you've you've maybe sort of taken us into the last topic we might have time for, which is what's been surprisingly easy about collaborating with people, and what's also been perhaps more difficult than you expected. Because I wouldn't be surprised to find it's a mix of both.
2: Yeah, so I think yeah, it was surprisingly easy that we found Microsoft funding with Queen Mary University of London. But I think it really goes back to the point Julian and Helen were making earlier about your networks. So I used to hate networking from a financial services background. It was all very alpha male. And it was within 30 seconds, what deal can you do with me? And I just used to hate it. And then I discovered a new world of networking, which was about connecting other people. Julian alluded to this earlier of, well, who can I connect? Who do I think ought to be having a conversation? I'll rely on serendipity that that's going to happen to me too. I'll do some good turns, some good turns will come back to me. And I think actually it's really interesting. So at Belton, you introduced me to Julian. Julie and I introduced to an organisation called Memcom, Membership Community, so we now regularly see each other on a CEO community and we share ideas and how we're going to fix whatever problem we're dealing with <laughs> because most membership bodies are dealing with something similar. Helen I met through the Institute of Directors and Helen was giving a fabulous talk about culture and organisations <laughs> and we connected after that and on it goes. <laughs> So I think it's about just being open and being out there and who can I talk to? Who's got something interesting to say? And it might just be interesting, but it might lead to something else.
0: If I can follow up on that, I think that that sort of leads me into the what is hard. And I think this draws together some threads that we've talked about. So I think that because of that aspect of, if you like, serendipity, Happening to meet somebody, be in a room with somebody, read something online, that can lead you down collaborating really with the obvious people, the usual suspects, the people who are closest to you and most like you. So what really bothers me is where do those collaborations come from that bring us those new ideas and those completely off-the-wall perspectives, the stuff I'd have never thought about. Because if I'd have never thought about those ideas, I probably wouldn't think about those potential partners either. How do we make the search for potential partners more systematic, more effective, that doesn't require hours and hours and hours of desk research or going out to conferences all over the world, which is a charity, I mean, we just can't do. I do wonder, so here is a potentially off the wall idea. I wonder if AI has a hand in this, right? I wonder, and I might try it after this call, if you were to put a prompt into chat GPT that said... Can you find the organizations that share this purpose and these values? What would it come up with? I don't know. I wonder if AI in the future will help us go, let me just find, I have this problem, I have this strategic objective, who might be interested in that? Because that's my big blocker to collaboration at the moment, and we do tend to end up talking to the people that we kind of already know or who are just one sort of relationship removed from us.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah. I'll look forward with interest to hearing how your experiment there goes, because I can see that's a huge challenge. Julia, what, what have you found either unexpectedly, pleasingly sort of easy about this collaboration thing, or or perhaps found it more difficult than you would have hoped?
3: Um, well, I'm certainly going to be hitting the search button after this call, just to see what I can find in response <laughs> to some kind of the So it's a very good idea. I can't believe I've not done that yet. Um, Point I've made before. we're, We're a membership body. You know, if you work in places like us, it's part of your DNA. You have to be open to doing collaborative ventures, collaborative work. If you don't, then it's really, really difficult to do the jobs and do the role and to deliver all the wonderful things that we're all seeking to make advances around. The hard part and the hard things, well, we're a membership body, you know. We have members, lots of them, and they have different views on different matters at d- different times. A lot of the time there's a great deal of common ground, which is wonderful and which is excellent. But um, that's not where you spend your energy. You spend your energy on the bits where there's differences and, and people have a slightly different view on the world. And being able to work together, to collaborate together, to settle on something that you can agree on and steps you forward is quite a hard thing for some of the membership bodies where they've got a little bit more difference in the membership base on on how things work. So trying to get them and get us all to kind of move in an agreed direction, you know, that is quite tricky. It takes up a lot, a lot of time and a lot of effort goes into trying to gather in views and opinions and seek compromise and solutions to put things forward. You know, my organization's really hybrid, you know, five days a week pretty much in the office as was, and you know, we're we're in 20% of the time now. So the bringing of people together in ways that allows you to do the collaborative work with hybrid working, we all want to embrace hybrid and allow people to do it for all the benefits that are kind of well known that sit alongside it. But sometimes to get your members and the people that you work with together sometimes for those trickier, you know, strategic discussions, you know, the ones where you're kind of kicking things around. You've got no idea what you're going to come out with when you're walking into the room necessarily. Making that collaboration work in the world that we live in now is quite tricky. We're finding our way forward and through it, but we're still nowhere near a place where it's as sweet and as effective as I imagine it will be in a few years down the line. So that's a little thing that we're grappling with. I'd largely
2: agree with you, Julian. I've got a slightly different perspective on it. And and this is probably born out of my experience of having worked in international organizations for 30 years. You can't run an international organization always being in the room. I was on conference calls 20, 30 years ago, and that's how we used to run our businesses. And, yeah, we, we all went through that mad experiment um, during during lockdown. And it was really interesting to see, because because we've been international. the, the organisation is international, STEP is international, our members are in 100 different countries. Getting them together has rarely been about getting them in the same physical room. Yes, we do lots of events around the world where people come to the room and, and collaborate and do business. But we've, we've regularly been doing it by some other means as well. So I think there's, there's there's a bit about our practice and our mindset. Sometimes there's no substitute for being in the room. I personally struggle on Teams or Zooms or whatever getting that really rich conversation where people are talking over each other that you can do in in the live room um, and it just doesn't work, does it, on a team's (laughs) call.
3: There you go. There's another example of something where Mark and I would would need to have a chat as a result of listening to this conversation. How he makes that work.
1: Unfortunately, we have to bring this to a close. Um, I think this conversation itself has been a really interesting example of the value of reaching out to people who have different experiences, different points of view, different capabilities. Let me again thank the three of you for joining us for this. I do hope it spawns further conversations, some of them perhaps to be captured and recorded as part of the podcast, but many of them hopefully will carry on elsewhere. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Belden. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.